We are Marquette. 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 We When we say we are Marquette, what does that mean to everyone at Marquette? Who are the people who don't feel that they are Marquette? All of the different constellations of those folks will come and sit down in my office, and we can then talk together about not just what I can do, but what they can do to make some change. That's what I love. I'm Tim Sigelski, and welcome to the fourth episode of the We Are Marquette podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Student Affairs Vice President Dr. Xavier Cole. Dr. Cole arrived at Marquette in the summer of 2016 after he felt called to return to the people-centered approach of Jesuit education. He talked with me about Marquette's long-standing mission to serve first-generation students, getting comfortable with the discomfort and urgency of change, creating moral and ethical leaders at a time when it's greatly needed, and much more. And now, here is my conversation with Dr. Xavier Cole. Xavier Cole, welcome. <laughs> it's good to be here. So tell us about your background. What led you to Marquette? Well, um, honestly, meeting someone who's Jesuit educated led me to Marquette primarily. Um, I was a pub- big public school kid. You know, went to Ole Miss, went to Miami University for my master's degree. Um, and I learned about Jesuit education uh, by meeting a person who had Jesuit education in high school and uh, Jesuit education in college. But what made him unique and interesting is that he was doing things that I didn't see anyone else my age at the time doing. I was 22. He was uh, doing pretty serious service. He was setting up international service trips to Belize. He was um, truly a man for others. And I didn't know what that term was. I just knew that here was a person who was youngish and he seemed pretty centered and directed and had seemed to have a life philosophy. And so when I asked him, you know, where'd that come from? He told me he was Jesuit educated. Now it's a tagline. That's what he told me, literally. And then he explained what that meant and I was turned on by it. And uh, so when I came out my first job out of uh, graduate school seeking uh, my first professional experience, I only sought uh, Jesuit educational experiences, looking at Holy Cross, looking at Loyola, Maryland, uh, landed at Loyola, Maryland, and that was a good place for me for 20 years. Um, I then, you know, wanted to figure out, is this all that there is? I've been working at Loyola for 20 years and wanted to see if, you know, what I do was transferable to other things, and I had an interest in working very closely with students, so I went and um, became Vice President of Student Affairs at a small liberal arts uh, college in um, Chestertown, Maryland, Washington College, uh, lovely place, beautiful place in the country, very different from where I was in Baltimore for for 20 years, and uh, it was a good physical change, but there was something uh, missing, and it took me a while to put my fingers on it. What was missing was me being out of an environment that uh, had that was that was extremely mission forward, that uh, everyone knew what the mission was. It guided most decisions that were made, uh, even financial ones. You know, where do we put our emphasis? Where do we place our dollars? How do we attract students? What are we trying to teach them? Who are our students becoming? Like, how do we do that? It was all based upon uh, very clear mission knowledge that everyone in the environment understood, or most people in the environment understood. Um, you take that away from an institution, uh, you still have an institution that can educate and shape students in their formation, but not in the ways and not in the type of person that I like to see produced that I got into the business for is this type of person that I saw early on, my friend that was Jesuit educated. So um, the, the quick story is that I went to uh, an inauguration out at Loyola, Maryland. Uh, to watch my uh, friend Tim Snyder become president there. I'm sorry, Loyola Marymount out in Los Angeles. And um, while there, it had been a while since I'd been in a Catholic Mass. It had been a while since I'd seen Mass of Holy Spirit. It had been a while since I'd been in an environment that was basically washed in, in Jesuit ethos, in Ignatian ethos. And, uh, and it was overwhelming how much I missed it. It was surprising, actually, uh, how much I missed it. But 
it was at that moment I realized why I wasn't as happy or as settled or as content as I thought I would be, and it was because I missed Jesuit education. So in that moment I decided I'm coming back. Um, Marquette came open uh, within a year. I got ready for it and uh, was very intentional about uh, coming back to a place that understood and employed mission in the ways that I had understood it. And it's been everything I thought it would be. It's been more than that. Uh, it's been one of the best fits that I could have possibly imagined as a professional. It's been good for my family uh, moving here to Milwaukee. Um, but it's, it's, it's been one of the best decisions of my professional life to come here because it was, an, it was something that I, I realized and I did something about, and I don't think I'll ever leave Jesuit education again. Mm-hmm. You had one of those aha moments where you're like, this is where I need to be at this point in my life, and this is where I should go. Absolutely. I want to back up real quick. So tell me more about who is this person that introduced you to Jesuit education, and how did mm-hmm. your paths cross? So it sounds like you had mm-hmm. you know, a lot of influence from this person. So where did that come from? Uh, I'm sure you won't mind. Uh, he's a person who was like out there in the world. Uh, his name's Kevin Talls, Kevin Yonkers Talls, actually. Uh, he and his wife, Trina, run the Casa de Solidaridad down in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have another place in, I think, the Philippines and another place um, where they where they do um, a Jesuit service, service-based education, uh, experientially-based education, where they bring students down there for a semester or a year to basically walk in solidarity with the people of that particular country. And in Central America, uh, you know, there, there are lots of struggles, as there are struggles here, but there are significant struggles there with poverty and all these things that Jesuit education is supposed to be a remedy for. And so uh, they've started these programs. But I met, met Kevin as a fellow graduate student uh, at Miami University. Uh, I was a hall director and he was a, an assistant hall director. And uh, this is how I came to know him. And over that couple of years working together, uh, I came to know a lot about him and a lot about what formed him in Jesuit education. And that's how that influenced me. And, and you know, something very Ignatian he did, he also named gifts and talents in me that he saw, mm. that he told me that he thought that I had characters and traits that would be a good fit for Jesuit education. Hmm. That's not something that I would have stumbled across. I wouldn't have put those two things together. You know, that Catholic Jesuit education would have been the best place for me. Hmm. Uh, But he told me this, and frankly, he told me enough that I believed it. And so um, it's still, it is absolutely a watershed moment. I, I attribute this to anytime I'm talking to students or any other folks that want to understand like who I am as a professional. That's generally where I start. And um, and, and that was the Ignatian influence. And I have an, an, another strong mentor, but that, my, my peer. Uh, and so uh, his family's actually from the Chicago area. So he's actually, you know, comes into town every once in a while and we'll get together and we'll just talk and laugh and, mm. and catch up about, you know, who we've become and the work that we're doing and just, you know, how wonderful it is, you know, to still be doing, you know, the work that we're supposed to be doing that we're called to do. So it sounds like he kind of helped you with the discernment process, mm-hmm. whether or not you would call it that or even knew it was something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of the things then he said that, hey, you're a good fit for Jesuit education because blank? Or what are some things that he identified in you that you were like, oh, maybe I could do this or maybe this is you know, kind of an awakening to your skills or talents? What did he what did he see? I think the main thing is that he saw how much I love people and that my deep care for the person is like the center of the work that I do. And uh, I didn't know about Cure Personalis. You know, I didn't know what that meant at the time. He just saw me working with people in that way. And so he named that for me. And that has always been the way that I've worked and I've been attracted to uh, other leaders who also place um, people first and students first. I mean, that's why you know, I, I have education. I have talents. I, that's why I didn't go to the business world. That's why I didn't go take my talents other places. I thought that uh, they were better served here forming this generation of student leaders um, or this generation of leaders, you know, ethical leaders, uh, leaders with purpose, leaders with focus, leaders who use their skills and talents and privilege for more than just their own and their family's gain. There's there's clear. It was very clear to me. And that's from my family. Um you know, um, it's, it's, it's more than just about the money. 
you know, my mother was a pretty grounded person. Uh, she, she raised me to be a pretty grounded and authentic person. You know, it's always going to be more than just about the money. And, and so um, that I think that's what, what Kevin saw. And, you know, I saw a lot of great things in him. And I certainly I, I did tell him it wasn't like right away. I didn't just gush on him right away. That had been a little odd, you know, but once we got to know each other and had a relationship where we could talk, um, you know, man to man, you know, those those late night talks in college mm-hmm. that you have, you know, where you start talking at around 11 and you end up it's like two o'clock and you're still talking about something. You know, that it was one of those things. So this led you to this path in student affairs, which led to a path in Jesuit education. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you describe what you do now? Like what mm-hmm. is, I guess, broad picture student affairs? What does that mean? <laughs> it, and then how does that funnel down to what you do day to day? Well, student affairs, uh, I, I think of it as, as looking at the vice president and, and their responsibilities. So if you say uh, Dave Murphy's the VP for marketing and communication, People generally know what that is because it's marketing and communication, all the things that come under that, advertising, you know, how we put our brand out there. Most anyone understands that. When you say student affairs, it is a hodgepodge of things. It is one of the few vice presidencies, like you say advancement, you know what that is generally. It's fundraising. Student affairs is a collection. It is an umbrella of student services uh, that uh, ranges from the clinical, your counseling center, your medical clinic, um, to and um, some case management, uh, psychological services, uh, to uh, the leadership development, like the way we work with student government or with our RAs or with our orientation leaders, like giving students an opera and service, giving our students an opportunity to test out leadership skills before they're out in the world. That this is their laboratory, and then over to on uh, other educational components. You know, we deal with diversity education and training, uh, and and then there is. Uh, another piece that's around wellness is that's around recreation, um, res life, uh, where they lay their heads at night. You know, uh, I, it, it, it's always sometimes hard for me to sit down and name all of my units. Mm-hmm. I have that many disparate units. And so that's the interesting thing about being a vice president for student affairs. You create an umbrella of goals for them that they all can possibly feed into. So they need to be generally broad. But what student affairs is, is providing experiences, training, development, opportunities for students to learn and be educated outside the classroom. And we're under the provost umbrella, and so that is um, looking towards, here's how what they are learning in the classroom also then dovetail so you'll learn about something in theory and then you'll hopefully be able to go outside the classroom and test that out on campus beyond campus and in the world Uh, and our job is to make sure that they have the leadership skills to do that the relational skills to do that um, to make sure that they're safe Mm -hmm. Uh, we have lots of partners that we work with we spend a good uh, amount of time keeping students safe from things external and internal and from themselves Mm -hmm. you know and so that tends to be a bit of a 24-hour on-call full-time job it's not for everybody Um, it can tend to have high levels of burnout for people in the in the entry-level positions your hall directors people on call counselors on call at night etc like that Um, but it's it's extremely enjoyable for me because of the diversity mm-hmm. of the folks that I work with and and seeing the intersections of that work. And uh, you wouldn't necessarily know how alcohol and drug would link up with the career center, for example, which isn't in my unit, but a collaborator or with campus ministry. But those people, those two groups of people can find ways to interact and basically provide a service to students who need mm-hmm. it. So uh, I, I find it fascinating. I, I always have. And I don't know if I'd be bored if I had just one or two things to focus on. I'm like that right now. Mm-hmm. And we also deal with crisis management. I mean, you know, it just takes, we're like firemen. I mean, it takes a special type of person to want to do the work. And most of the people in my shop, they do it because they love students. Mm-hmm. That's the center of it. I think the fireman analogy is good because it's easy to forget, like, kind of being on the inside, but we're, we're a small city, you know? Mm-hmm. And Marquette's essentially the same size as the hometown I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And students come here, and we feed them, we, we give them a place to live, we have mm-hmm. a police force, we, mm-hmm. have, we educate them, mm-hmm. uh, and then we provide all these other opportunities for them to become adults mm-hmm. and well-rounded people. And a lot of those fall under your purview of, mm-hmm. like, just a constellation of things that mm-hmm. we have to make sure that they're getting these experiences so when they leave here, they're 
you know, ready to go out in the world and they're formed. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to say fully formed, but they're getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so within that sort of constellation of things that you do and that you oversee and that you're doing day to day, is there any specific things that you find the most rewarding mm-hmm. or the most interesting or the most fun? I know there's a lot, mm-hmm. but you're like, if you came into work one day and you're like, well, I get to work on this today, mm-hmm. it's going to be a challenge, but it's going to be fun, or I'm mm-hmm. going to really enjoy this. Is there anything like specific duties that you're like, this is it. I'm excited for today. You know, as a, as a vice president, I don't get to do as much hands-on doing as I used to do, um, developing programs and actually implementing them. You know, there's a lot of developing and there's a lot of strategically thinking about, but there's not as much time for me to implement things the way I used to when I was first a young professional. I could have an idea for a way in which to develop students, create that program, and then execute it, and then see the outcomes of it. Um, what is exciting now is that I have all this talent around me and uh, I can come out with a kernel of an idea. Or, for example, we want to do comprehensive diversity education for our students. What does that look like? You know, what are the possible components? How do we get them to understand why it's important for them? How do we get them to buy in that it's something that's going to be helpful or useful for them, like, you know, theoretically or even practically? Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave Marquette, go to a global corporation, and expect to know how to deal with something other than a person who grew up two, two miles from me. Mm-hmm. Um, that Watching that process, like putting an idea out there and, and watching all the feedback come back and then managing that until there's something that you can then polish and turn into a product and that we could all execute, that's a pretty exciting thing. I mean, that's where I kind of get my kicks now um, that I know that I don't have the time to do my own execution sometimes and how I do keep that uh, tangible uh, connection with students is I do a lot of talks with students. I, I go to them, they ask me to come speak, I come speak to them. I, they, someone asks me to do a training, I'll come do it because that's my opportunity to do something besides sitting with other vice presidents and deans talking about st- strategy of what should be. Um, not that that's bad, it's necessary, but if that were my only job, if that were the only thing I would do, I wouldn't find that as rewarding as I do watching uh, people develop young professionals develop and students develop, watching them grow into um, their roles, watching them um, grow towards something that seemed very difficult at the beginning, or watching them take on challenges that they thought that they really didn't have the capacity to do, and finding that with collaboration and trust and vulnerability, you know, sharing of this work, then all of a sudden we do have the capacity to to do it. And so that's how I really approach my leadership with my team. We, we, we think collaboratively. We plan collaboratively. We come to decisions together about our direction. Uh, um, I'm, I'm not hierarchical. It's interesting because Marquette can be a bit hierarchical. Uh, that was a bit of a culture shift for, for my unit. Um, but we do a lot of uh, planning together, and I really enjoy it. I like it that I'm not always the smartest person in the room. I like being the smartest person in the room sometimes, um, but generally that's never the case, you know. Uh, and so I, that's the thing that keeps me going. And and the thing that I love is when students feel any student feel feels that I'm approachable enough that they can make an appointment with my assistant, they can come in and sit down with me and tell me whatever's on their mind, whether it's something that I've had arranged since I've gotten here to Marquette of just things that students were thinking about as an idea to here's a problem I wanna solve, or I love Marquette and I think that they do this poorly. This is my idea about how to fix that, or here's a tension on campus that I can't abide by, or this is something I feel very deeply about, you know, personally and intellectually, uh, whether it's around, you know, reproductive rights or whether it's around um, pro-life, pro-choice issues, you know, these things that get kind of messy in the real life. Mm-hmm. Students will come into me or diversity issues on campus, like who's welcome, who feels welcome or not. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how do they feel a part of when we say we are Marquette? What does that mean to everyone at Marquette? Mm-hmm. You know, who are the people who don't feel that they are Marquette? You know, so all of different constellations of those folks will come and sit down in my office, students, graduate students, undergraduate students, and talk to me about their experience of Marquette. And we can then talk together about how, what they can do, mm-hmm. not just what I can do, but what they can do to make some change. That, that's what I love to do. And 
that is something that gives me a rush and um seeing them at graduation or seeing them at their award ceremonies or seeing them recognized for that even when they didn't think they would be uh they don't need to be but they don't think they need to be that that's the a critical part of it but just seeing them uh getting that recognition and understanding that they've contributed something to the wider community i think that's that's pretty exciting too so um i like that you said you know you you're, you, you're proud when you're approachable and people can just make an appointment with you and you can listen. Mm-hmm. And I think you've been here a year now. So part of it, part of um, being here and, and being new to here is just kind of listening, soaking in up the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've done a lot of that. Mm-hmm. In that time, so it's been about a year now, mm-hmm. what has surprised you or been maybe something unexpected that popped up that you're like, okay, this is this is something, an issue we have to deal with. We need mm-hmm. to be better at this. Uh, or, well, I didn't realize Marquette had the strength here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what have you learned in kind of that year of just listening and learning? Mm-hmm. What, what I've learned is that, and I'm not sure if the surprise is the word. I've just been, I've been, I've been pleased by it. The, the, the spirit of, of connection here at Marquette, uh, our, our ethos when just, how people feel when they say the word Marquette here, seeing people walk around with Marquette on their chest all the time, like wearing their only Marquette gear. You'll see some Wisconsin stuff in there every once in a while by someone who's been ruined by maybe a split family. But, <laughs> but uh, seeing that pride of ownership of this brand of who we are and what that means in excellence, faith, leadership, and service, that has been, I didn't expect that it would be so strong. Um, and that's a positive and a negative thing. It is positive when we're trying to get people going in the right direction and we can draw on that camaraderie, that sense of belongingness um, to move us some things forward, that we can get people on board that this is the best thing for Marquette. And there are a lot of people who love Marquette. And in the year I've come to love Marquette, I can honestly say that. Um, that's the positive thing, to use that for that good. The, the flip side of that, the dark side of that, is that when real change needs to happen to re- make room for Marquette becoming something else, mm-hmm. for Marquette realizing the, the Majus, right? Uh, that there's some change that needs to happen um, in any various area, not just physical change or programs. We're talking about making room in the Marquette story for people who have not previously participated in it. And so if we think about uh, articulation agreements with community colleges, May or may not have been a popular thing here, but that is clearly at the root of who we are as a Jesuit school. You know, our mission to serve our first generation, our working poor, um, to give them an opportunity for more um, through education. That is clearly what was intended by Jesuit education. But, you know, after three or four generations of educating that working poor, they're not the working poor anymore. They're the middle class or the upper class. They're the upper upper class you know there's nothing wrong with that but it takes us further away from what we were built to do in the 1850s in this particular case 1880s um and and so it's hard to prepare a community that feels that marquette is just good as it is to realize that we could be better and that better includes becoming more diverse, becoming more open, um, making room for other people's stories and how we experience Marquette. Um, so what we haven't done so well, and what I've heard a lot since I've been here, and particularly as a person of color here, a black man on campus, uh, is that folks who are not uh, Midwestern, Caucasian, Wisconsin perhaps, um, don't feel as welcome here. Now, that's hard for me to understand because of my experience here, but I also understand my privilege. I also understand my position. I'm a vice president. I get it. I'm going to be welcomed in different ways. So what if I weren't? What if I were just a transfer student from a community college outside Chicago coming into Marquette? How am I welcomed here? How do I know that I'm being invited into everything that's the tradition? How do I know that I'm being accepted in the residence halls and people not asking me like what hood I'm from or how do I know that I can walk in worlds of people and say I'm from Marquette and then someone say really 
you're from Marquette. You don't look like you're from Marquette. And they don't necessarily directly question that way. But the look you I've seen, I've heard this experience with people with alums who come back for events, you know, who aren't exactly comfortable at their alma mater. That is something that is a blind spot for Marquette. And it's something that we are addressing, whether it's with HSI or whether it's some of the stuff that we're doing in my shop to deal directly with African-American students in a very specific and and, and pointed way um, through positions and and services. But that type of attention is needed because, be honest with you, um, Marquette could click along as it is for a very long time and do just fine, you know. I think there's some people who knowingly know that, and some you know unknowingly know that. But I, I think people kind of understand. Some people kind of understand that. And so when we talk about expanding access, uh, diversifying Marquette, uh, doing some things like that that changes how we look and feel, there's some real resistance. Mm-hmm. And you know, I won't even get into the 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 one thing that I heard about that still persist about who we are and a mascot, you know, that thing I don't even want to touch. I mentioned it only as an example of, yes, sometimes there's change that happens without wide consultation. Yes, you know, sometimes institutions make decisions that people don't necessarily agree upon, but the way in which we've held on to that particular moment in time makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things that we probably did that we shouldn't have done or could have done differently in the past, whether it was how we were in the Civil Rights Movement and the March on um, Milwaukee in the late 60s. You know, that's that's history that is all very correctable by what we do today. And, and so I think keeping people in the present and how we can make this decisions to make us more of who we are in our mission, I think people need to understand why. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if they truly believe in this mission, then they'll get on board. Mm-hmm. If they don't, then they will stay mired in not wanting to change. And so I, I think Marquette, the most successful institutions are extremely diverse ones. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at Harvard, they're not just all one type of person. There are a constellation of people. My alma mater, Penn, same thing. The more diverse, the better there's still a place for everybody. There's nothing wrong with it. And the learning that happens in these diverse environments is rich beyond some people's imagination. You know, that's why they are what they are. The more diverse ideas we have, the more innovative and creative we can be. So I know that that was a bit of a longer t- yeah. longer style rant. <laughs> but if there's anything, and I don't, I don't love Marquette less for this, mm-hmm. I just know that I'm in a position to actually help Marquette meet those goals. And these, I mean, those, what you, everything you just mentioned, those are big systematic and conversations that are happening on the macro level beyond Marquette. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, you know, as you first mentioned, as a Jesuit university, like we have a stake in those conversations. Like Mm -hmm. it's not that they're any more or less important here, but as a place with a Jesuit tradition, we feel like we need to be part of those conversations and mm-hmm. it's important for us. Um, so, I mean, it's, like, what do you think we are doing at this point? Maybe what steps are we taking? Uh, where do we go from here? Um, and whether that means specific programs that we're mm-hmm. doing or initiatives mm-hmm. uh, or conversations or just things that you see kind of from your level that we do on a sort of day-to-day basis, month-to-month basis, and year-to-year basis? What does that look like? I think that we're starting to put the people in place with particular competencies in this area in order to do the leadership of the area. So whether it's me or a person I just hired, I just hired an assistant vice president who deals with diversity and inclusion and and other things within my shop, um, you need particular competencies of people used to doing the work, and it doesn't always come from within Marquette. so we need we we then need those people to train ourselves, and then our people can become more competent in dealing with diversity issues on a wider level. Um, I think another thing that we can do that most Jesuit schools, all Jesuit schools do, and particularly Ignatian schools do, is that we enter through hospitality. 
you know, that hospitality is extremely important. It's something, frankly, that Marquette is known for. I mean, you walk across campus, people open doors, they say hello, there's a friendliness, there's a helpfulness that's here. That needs to translate to folks, even if they don't look like they belong here. You know, that should be for everybody. And so how we welcome people in intentionally programs for, here's a great example. Uh, we just have the new Spark orientation program we started this year. Uh, there are five or six of them that we do over the summer until we get to August. Two of those programs were dedicated where we purposefully and intentionally invited uh, Hispanic and, and Spanish-speaking families to come to sessions two and three, where we set up translation services, where we set up uh, places for them to be able to fully participate in everything. Now, unless you've been in a situation where you were out of country or, or in a place where people were speaking a different language, you, you understand how disconnected you can feel when you aren't able to understand what's around you. All right. And so we created an environment where we were intentional and it, cre- it took some effort. It took some time. It took some resources. But what we got back from that, the looks on the faces of all of our Spanish speaking families, you know, how comfortable they were, uh, how excited they were. And it took away the anxiety about sending their precious possession off into a, a world that's not only f- foreign to them, just it is for every student you send off to college, but you add other barriers in, there's a lot of trepidation to send your kid away in that situation. So by us just doing that simple thing and that one program as an example, we wiped a lot of those barriers away. And so they're sitting at base point with everybody else and their general anxiety about just sending their kid away. They don't have other barriers. That takes intentionality. That is, a, I think, a perfect example of the type of things that we can do to be more mindful, that there are different experiences that we need to basically uh, be, be respond to. And so I think about orientation programs for, for first-generation students is going to be the next level. You know, there, we just need to recognize if you had, did not grow up into a, in a family that your parents went to, went to university or college, there's a lot you don't know about how to not navigate college. And you do learn that over four years, but there's a lot of stumbling that can be avoided and a lot of mistakes and some catastrophic academically, socially, otherwise that can be avoided if you have programs that anticipate and then answer some of these questions and serve as a surrogate for that parent who did not go to college. Those are the type of things that we need to do. Those are the type of things that we are doing and the type of things that we're going to be committed to. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't focus on students who are prepared, that, you know, are, you know, uh, a white middle class kid coming from Chicago suburbs coming to Marquette. They still have needs, too. And trust me, we already have programs set up that's been addressing those for years. Those weren't the needs that weren't being met. Those were the others. So what we're going to see is a focus on other groups for a while in order to get all boats to rise to a particular level. And then we can launch off successfully. And then we can expect that students can meet the metrics that we're setting for them. If they have to meet the metrics that we set academically or otherwise and have these stumbling blocks, it just makes Marquette very difficult. So that's the difference between someone graduating from a Marquette degree saying, I want to come back. I want to give back. I want to be back rather than I can't go back there yet. It's too much pain, too many memories that there were difficulties that I need to get over before I can be in that space. That is the experience of many people who are non-traditional or or of color from Marquette's uh, alumni base right now. And you could ask them about that to verify, but that's what I hear when I talk to them. And that's what we need to remedy. So you mentioned, you know, Spark and these Mm -hmm. new programs we're having. Uh, you know, attention for first generation, attention for students whose parents didn't go to college. Those are all sea changes for Marquette. You know, this is mm-hmm. the very first year we're doing Spark. It's mm-hmm. a very, in some ways, different system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're starting to see these things happen mm-hmm. on campus now after, you know, years of things just not quite maybe doing things the same way in, in certain ways. Uh, how do how do you see these sea changes happen? Uh, maybe take us behind the curtain, um, maybe conversations you've had or mm-hmm. things you've seen. Uh, why and how are we seeing these things happen at Marquette now, and how can we see more of it in the future? I think we're, we're seeing these things happen now because of the leadership in place. So you have Mike Lovell, who 
uh, is extremely forward thinking. He is a doer. He is a person who moves very quickly. Uh, he has lots of ideas. Uh, he's very innovative. He's an inventor. I mean, he's an engineer that invents things. You know, uh, and he's certainly been able, he's been talking since he's gotten here about the changing landscape of higher education. That if we don't act differently, be differently, think differently, strategically, be different in the landscape we're in, we're going to just more exponentially fall behind. So that's one reason. Then you add a provost uh, in Dan Myers, who is very forward thinking, has a, a deep desire and understanding of diversity and it's important to the education that our students get. And so he was a person that introduced the idea of the HSI. This was all very much informed by his work in uh, Ignatian Colleagues program where he was thinking about what type of mission-centered initiative can I direct from my perch? And HSI is the thing that came out of this. You know, and then you have uh, Dave Lawler, who's the exec new executive vice president, who's coming in from a mixture of a business and higher ed background that knows how to drive change, you know, and not in a way that is unsustainable for us, but certainly a way that'll be a little bit uncomfortable for us. And so in the last six months, you know, we've had to work faster than we've worked before with a little bit more urgency in order so we can then have time to sit back and reflect and clean. That's not the way academics usually go about things. We polish something until it's shiny and perfect, and then we present it. That takes time, which is why it takes time for change in academia. Business world isn't like that. Things go in iterations and things are developed and eventually the product gets to where you want to be by testing and failing and failing quickly and then making the change. That's very different way of thinking for academics. And so, and then you have people like me who come in from the outside of Marquette, who have a, a I have a deep respect for Jesuit education. Uh, I have a deep respect for Marquette, but I'm also in, a, in, a, in an advantage that I can evaluate Marquette objectively from being somewhere else, seeing something, somewhere, something else, doing something else, and not that that something else is necessarily better. There are lots of things that Marquette do extremely well that others adopt, but there are some things that we just didn't do that others have been doing for years, and it's not just because it's just something to do. It's because it's the best practice, and so when you have enough people who are open to change in those positions, then change happens. The important thing and I learned this from my staff in particular, is that you involve many voices in that change, that people understand that it's not change for change's sake. This is why the change is happening. Here, here's what's behind that change. Give it to them three different ways, the emotional, the academic, the metrics, you know, give them the numbers, give them all sorts of things, give them the practical. We have to change to survive. You know, so you do all of that, you get people bought in, and then you give them their role in the change. You, or you find their role in the change. You make sure they know enough about it that they know how to contribute. That's where we are. We're in that middle phase of now introducing what the change is to the community. People can figure out where they contribute. We don't won't have as much time to individually invite people into the change. People have to see themselves that I have to get involved in this because this is the train that's moving. you know. And that's the tougher part. We don't always have enough time to in the Ignatian way, personally invite everyone. But we do it through leadership and it filters down. But the intention is most certainly to invite multiple voices into the changes happening. So again, those on the ground can also be part of the most important execution of the change. So, um, you know, there's this quote that, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? It, it makes people mindful uh, that we have to be attentive to the people in the environment, not just the goal, not just the change that has to happen, but the people who have to implement that change. And so a big part of my leadership is being extremely transparent as I can with you know non-confidential information with my staff so we can be as informed as we can be and so I can get their good thinking on where next to go. That's what I think good leaders do, that they listen to their people. Uh, and, but. And so when it comes time for me, for them to listen to me, then it's, there's a reciprocity that can happen, that they can trust that I'm doing what's in the best interest of them and me and the university. So I think this, uh, this next question touches on your previous answers and things you've, you've talked about. But big picture higher education, and as you mentioned, 
uh, President Lovell has talked about the changing winds of higher education and the pressures on it. Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges in higher education? And you've had experience at this institution and others mm-hmm. that you see that we need to address in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years out. Well, the main thing is there are challenges to why is higher education needed? Like, why do you need a BA degree? Why do you need a master's? Why do you need a PhD in English? You know, these are questions that are being asked of people outside of academia. Like, is there a, a, a value to what people spend, which is can be upwards of, you know, $250,000 for uh, a bachelor's degree if you're paying for that full freight? Now, most people don't, but still, there's significant investment, and, and it's at minimum $100,000 for a private school education, at minimum, when it's all said and done. And so people are asking, is it worth it? Are, are people coming out to be able to get jobs that can pay that back? You know, um, those are the type of things. And so for us at Marquette, how we answer that, that it's not just about your, your practical vocational skills that you're learning uh, about your particular area of expertise. The value added that we have is that we're creating moral, ethical leaders who can go out in whatever uh, area of expertise that they're working in and be the difference. And, and literally make decisions that are good for all and not just for one. Make decisions that are beyond the bottom line. Whistleblow when necessary when things are going to hurt people. Uh, we're trying to produce graduates that change the world. Every Jesuit school does. You know, uh, That is something that we can trade on. Um, but there are lots of questions when you have young entrepreneurs and startups. We're kind of past like that big bubble startup thing that happened on Silicon Valley where everyone's like people, kids are dropping out of high school thinking that they had the next best app or thing or service and that they're going to be Steve Jobs or or whomever, you know. And then that kind of slowed down a little bit. And there we get back to the practicality is that it's not just about being good or knowledgeable about one thing and then being successful about that. It's being, it's being a liberally educated person who could be well-rounded and be able to be adaptable when things do change. That is the thing that we also can sell, that this liberal education that you're receiving, this Jesuit education that you're receiving, helps you not just think in one direct way as only a person who understands business or only a person who understands humanities, but a person who understands the intersection of those things and faith all at the same time. That makes a person who can problem solve in a very different way. Those are the things that we need to market that keeps us viable. Um, but what's changed is that folks you know, would say, well, if you're coming into a university experience, what is the outcome immediately? Like, what are the possible jobs you're absolutely going to have, and what is that going to pay? And you know, it turns into this exchange where education, and as an educator, it really grates us. You know, that the process is not valued, and it's almost like you could do any old process, or take any old course, or have any old instructor, or or have any old content, and still at the end graduate with a piece of paper and get a job that pays you X. That's not the way education works, you know. And so what is tough to watch in this environment is that that has been devalued. Uh, I know what my liberal education has meant. I know what further education has meant for me. I know the way I can think or am capable of thinking, acting, and moving in the world because of that education. To have that be uh, set aside as maybe something that you need. Uh, and granted, we need people, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need all these folks, but they're still educated. They still need to be trained. And so how intellectual training over vocational training became devalued is a mystery to me. But that is the thing that we're fighting. The other thing that we're fighting is just the number of traditional age students uh, coming into college is shrinking, you know, and the populations are growing demographically are growing in folks who didn't used to come to Marquette. You know, it's in uh, Latino Latino students. It is in, uh, in some parts slightly African-American students. It is, it is in groups that aren't white students. And so that shrinking pool uh, has had an impact across the country uh, about people making their class. You, you hear other schools that, you know, you miss your class by 50 students. you got a real budget problem. You know, and schools going out of business, schools just closing doors. Um, it's because of that. Things are changing. But those schools 
if they could turn their attention to new populations, new ways of being, not just who we were, but who we need to be, trust me, they stay open because there are still students out there. It's just not the students you used to have. Mm -hmm. And so I I think Marquette is looking at this um, pragmatically, but also in a mission way that we can, two birds and one stone. You know, as we look at the diversifying of who we are and bring in more first gen folks. But the irony that we're getting back to who we actually served is just delicious for me, mm-hmm. you know, and it plays into what we're supposed to be doing. I don't think it's really going to change what Marquette means to people. I think it's just going to bring that brand to more people than we ever thought imaginable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something you mentioned too, um, you kind of see this for a while pendulum swing in higher education to what's the immediate outcome? You know, mm-hmm. like what job do you get after graduation and what are you gonna do with this degree to get that job? Which is important, very important. Mm-hmm. It's an investment, return on investment. Uh, but I think we're starting to see kind of what you mentioned, this longer term view of like, well, what, how's this prepare you for life? Mm-hmm. Because that job you get out for graduation may not last in this current form for long. <laughs> it's gonna right. look something very different. Right. And I do this exercise with one of my classes um, I asked them, uh, tell me how to write a resume. How do you write your resume? And they, all their hands go up. They know exactly how to do it. They say, well, this is what you need. This is how you write your objective. This is who you address it to. They're experts at writing their resume. And I'm like, great. This is great discussion. All right. How do you write your obituary? <laughs> and they just like, it's like, whoa, you know, they're shocked. And so it's this idea, and I forget who wrote the book, but the, um, the recent book that talked about the resume values versus the obituary values. Hmm. And I think we got to speak to both sides because, hmm. yes, college education is expensive. And, yes, you need a resume that's going to get you a job. Uh, but, you know, something I'm found, finding after I graduated 13 years ago is that there's value the longer you go on. And I know mm-hmm. it's not just me because I just went on a bachelor party with one of my really good friends who graduated with me. Mm-hmm. We're all Jesuit educated. And it's we're all we're out of all the point in our lives with families and, and things where like, okay, this is starting to speak to us at a different level now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beyond just the um, you know, what job did I get out of college and what mm-hmm. job am I doing now and what's my title and that sort of thing. But what's what does it all mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see yeah. that evolution. Well, yeah. And these are basic questions in Jesuit education that we ask our students at any particular time, hopefully earlier rather than later. You know, you know, what are your gifts and talents? Who needs them? Where are they needed? What brings you true joy? Do you know what that is in relation to happiness or other things, you know, but what brings you joy? What does that mean? You know, and can you have a vocation that does that for you? Does it have to be drudgery to create a dollar to pay for something? Because what you do quickly realize is that it's, there's something greater than that. That's not enough. You know, Mm -hmm. just walking through life day to day, getting to the end of another month, paying bills and keeping a roof over your head. Is that really what meaningful is that what life is all about and so it helps people start to think more deeply about this experience why you're here and what purpose you serve and when you start thinking about that and then you have the ability to have a Jesuit philosophy or Ignatian philosophy of education and what you're supposed to be doing with your gifts and talents you know to serve others all of a sudden and I even all of a sudden it, it becomes very very clear that there's more meaning out there mm-hmm. and that brings you certainly more joy there's a selfish part mm-hmm. you know but you know that you your life is it means something that you were here that whole Kilroy was here thing you know that's where it comes from you know everyone in their deepest core just wants to be loved valued and accepted very basic needs right and 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 doing this type of work this person-centered work you know, which is what I believe that I do and my people do and others here at work at Marquette, that we do person-centered work, um, th- that, that has a lot of value. And I'm not saying that we don't need businesses out there generating, you know, the products that we buy. I mean, but that's for somebody else. And that's for someone that that's their calling, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are these are timeless questions. You'd, you'd think that, uh, you know, you these are things that you study thousands of years ago, and in 2017, they're just as relevant today mm-hmm. as ever before. Um, there's a 
Chronicle of Higher Education article a couple of years ago, I don't know if you saw this, um, highlighting Marquette and other Jesuit schools mm-hmm. and talking about um, why, you know, why they were succeeding, you know, hundreds of years after they were founded uh, on Jesuit values and why are they relevant today? And mm-hmm they were finding, okay, young people crave meaning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to college and not always just for, you know, skills and resume things, but also, um, why am I here? Mm -hmm. What's my purpose? What Mm -hmm. what should I do with my life? Mm -hmm. And not that you can't address those at public schools. You certainly can, and there's certainly ways to do that. But what this article kind of pointed out is like, well, we can also talk about it on a spiritual level, mm-hmm. <laughs> on a personal level, if you choose to. And and that's kind of an advantage that, that we have built in over these thousands of years that's still in 2017, still impactful, believe it or not. Well, you sound like a Jesuit educated person. <laughs> <laughs> I've been yeah. I've been here a while now, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so switching gears a little bit, um, what do you do for fun? What do you do for mm-hmm. uh, inspiration or what's uh, what's... When, when you clock out, I know you, you can be called at any, any moment uh, mm-hmm. if, there's, if there's an emergency, but what, uh, what, what, would, what do you like to do? Well, I, I very much enjoy spending time with my family, my wife and dog, <laughs> which is the extent of my family, a little Karen Terrier. Um, that, that's first now. It's more, it's more um, uh, front and center since I've actually started this job as a vice president. Uh, it, it has many more demands on my time. It takes me into the weekends and nights, and particularly during the school year, I you know, can be gone a lot. And, and so that time with my family... Um, just being with them, sitting out on the back porch, having some coffee and having some breakfast and hanging out without any music or anything, just playing just, you know, nature, just blowing through the trees in the backyard. I mean, that is pretty important to me. That tells me that I'm much older than I think I am. Um, but but that, that's very important to me. That's the first thing. And that's and if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said the second thing first. I'm a, I'm a musician. I'm a trombone player. I have been since I was a child. Uh, I played professionally. Uh, for uh, 17, 18 years. Um, used to be in a band called Mood Swings Big Band uh, back in uh, Baltimore. Shout out to those folks. Uh, great people. They still gig out there. I'm actually going to uh, hopefully catch up with them soon uh, to, to gig again with them. But I used to play every weekend, every other weekend, music for money uh, for crowds of people, weddings, bar mitzvahs. It was great. You know, I had a good time. Um and, and music is a huge part of my life. So when I'm not playing music or trying to play music, I'm usually listening to music pretty intently. Um, I'm primarily a person who deals with classic jazz, but I'm open to a lot. My classic rock uh, aperture is pretty wide. You know, like one of my favorite bands is Steely Dan and the Eagles. You know, I mean, it's I have a love for music that stretches from classical to um, Metallica. You know, so I I really enjoy music in all forms, listening to it, playing it, introducing others to something new and interesting. Um, that would take up a lot of time. The thing that I need to do that I'm finding I want to do more is something um, very bourgeois, and that is play golf. Uh, I'm trying to get back into that more. I got some clubs for me and my wife. Uh, I've gone out a couple times and forgot how much I love just being out doing this. Now, I'm very keenly aware of the fact that I was playing in scrambles where you hit the best ball off the tee, and so I uh, fancy myself a better golfer than I actually am. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to go out and, and, and hit that little white ball. And never thought that'd be a thing that's just my primary thing. But, you know, you just be you and whatever works for you works for you. And and those are the things that are working for me. Family, music, and, and a little bit of uh, lazy athletics. I still want to get you to come to my class. Maybe do some <laughs> uh, some jazz with my students. Oh, sure, sure. I know I, cool. I got a little busy in the spring. But you, were, you were a busy guy. You were just got, <laughs> just got here <laughs> last fall. And I was like, hey, can you come to my class? Can we play some jazz? Um, anything to add to my Spotify playlist? Uh, any, anything you're listening to right now that I should, um, I should mm. be putting on there? You know, um, if you don't know Dave Holland, you heard his cat? I don't think so. Uh, he's an English bass player, upright bass player. He has quintet, quartet, octet, septets. He has like many different um, variations of a unit. He plays some of the hippest contemporary jazz 
out there. Him, Robin Eubanks. Uh, that's contemporary for me. If you go to classic jazz, I could be easy and tell you about Miles Davis or anything like that. But honestly, I'm going to go to just a name that's huge. There was nothing better for me than listening to Duke Ellington. Like any Duke Ellington unit, you know, the Webster Bland bands to all the things that he'd done up to the point that he was done playing. Duke Ellington is a genius, is an American icon. There's no one that wrote like him. There's no one who's come close. Our contemporary person that kind of acts Ellingtonian is Wynton Marsalis. So if you think about that type of scope, the production, the breath, you know, but there's no one that produced uh, as far as a musical um, canon, what Duke Ellington did for American jazz, period. All right, I'll add to my playlist. I, my background with that is um, when I was in high school, I was really into heavy metal. I, was, <laughs> I had hair down to here. I was a metalhead, and I was in something. I was also a geek, um, and I was in in something called Academic Decathlon. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of our units was jazz, and mm-hmm. I got so into it. I loved Ornette Coleman, mm-hmm. Charles Mingus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, like Miles Davis and that sort of stuff. And so my dog's name is Mingus. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, Dave Holland, uh-huh. uh, Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? What was the other one? Um, no, the, those 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 were the two that I was I was giving you polar ends. Okay. And uh, something I just in, enjoy listening to. Um, honestly, I've been really into the Eagles, man. I mean that that that's that sweet seventy spot. <laughs> you know, and they. And they some they, easy listening. They they 70s. made some good music, man. Okay, you I'll, know so I'll, I'll have to I'll have to listen to a little bit more. Before I mean, and if you're not into Steely Dan <laughs> and it's not for everybody, Steely Dan is like the best. My wife has never agreed with me. She can't listen to it. She makes me turn it off in the car, like you know. Which I don't know what's wrong with her, but honestly, Steely Dan, their lyrics make no sense, but the music <laughs> is exquisite. You know, so yeah, I, I'm yeah, I'm a bit like that. I, and, I listen to satellite radio and they have like 70s music, 80s music, 90s yeah. music. And it's, I, I will just switch from like decade to decade. And yeah. You just, just listen to like what was going on in each decade where people like, where this is what we're going to sound like. And 70s, it seems like it's coming back right now. Yeah. It seems like there's some influence with them coming well, back into today's music. But it was know. pure writing and playing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was music you could listen to. Period. Some I mean, easy things, listening stuff. In things there. that you, you laid in the dark and listened to. Uh-huh. And if you've never laid in like, the dark and, and listened to music, then you've missed something. Okay, I'll probably have to listen to it that way then, because I'm usually in the car and I'm like, why is this so... No, like- man, you just got to lay down with the lights off and uh, listen to some music because it amplifies uh, your hearing. You lose this, you lose all this other atmospheric, and, and, and you can really hear the music. I'll, that's a whole different perspective. I'll, I'll I'll give that a try. I'll have to wait for my kids to be asleep so they're not bothering me while I'm doing it. Like, what are you doing, Dad? Listen to seventies music. Just leave me alone. I'm told this is the way to listen to it. I'll do that. Uh, well, good advice. All right. So, last question. Wrapping up here is uh, this fall we have a class of twenty twenty one. And the same question I ask everyone is, what advice do you have for this incoming class, class of twenty twenty one? My advice is that. You be as much yourself as you can be and comfortable being. Uh, it serves no one that you pretend to be someone else. I know so many folks think that they could come to college and reinvent themselves. Not ever really successful because uh, it almost creates this, this schism between you and some alter ego of you. That's a lot of work. There's, there's, there are other things that you can focus on about how you develop. And so be your authentic selves coming in. And the last piece is that Take advantage of as much of Marquette's offerings as you can. Stretch yourself with the courses, not what just what you like, but what you're curious about as far as choosing your courses. And as far as involvement, you know, go abroad, you know, make the time for it. If you're in a program that's pretty, you know, concise as far as your schedule, like engineering or nursing, you know, figure out how you can go in January or in the summer, you know, go see something besides where you are. Because that movement into another experience allows it gives you a freedom to be more curious, to take more risk, to explore. And those habits transfer back to Marquette, where you engage this place that you thought you knew in an extremely different way. That includes Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. That you would be more apt to explore, more courageous about doing things, more willing to take some risks to have experience. And in the end, our experiences 
are some of the most important things. It, it's always interesting when I, I have a student who has just returned and this is their first semester back and you can just see like the wheel, wheels turning mm-hmm. uh, after they've studied abroad. Like they're just open to new experiences and it's like they're seeing everything with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, these surroundings that they've had for their whole life and now it's like, well, I didn't realize things were like this and mm-hmm. they can be a different way. So I think that's excellent advice. And it's the immersion into the experience. So going to visit for a weekend doesn't do it. It's the immersion into a mm-hmm. culture that makes this change, not just a vacation hit. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, anything you'd like to plug to uh, wrap up or any any place people can find you for, and you had mentioned before, like, you know, you you're, you seem open to just listening mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. listening to student experiences. Uh, so if people want to get a hold of you and or maybe even just uh, ask your advice on something, how can they do that? Well, they can always uh, go to the student affairs office up in the fourth floor of the union of AMU. Uh, I'm not there all the time, but uh, there are people there who know how to find me. Uh, you can always email me. That's the easiest way to get in touch with me. And um, students are going to see me out. Uh, They're going to see me out at their events. They're going to see me at athletic events. They're going to see me where they are. That's my job. Awesome. Well, Dr. Xavier Cole, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. And my pleasure. That does it for this edition. You can find a transcript of this interview, links, and show notes at stories.marquette.edu. If you'd like to nominate someone to be on this podcast, send a tweet to at MarquetteU or a message to facebook.com slash MarquetteU. For this and more podcasts, visit marquette.edu slash podcasts. That's podcasts with an S. See you next time.